Book six, chapters eight and nine of On War, volumes two and three, by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter eight, methods of resistance. The conception of the defence is warding off. In this warding off lies the state of expectance, and this state of expectance we have taken as the chief characteristic of the defence, and at the same time as its principal advantage. But as the defensive in war cannot be a state of endurance, therefore this state of expectation is only a relative, not an absolute state. The subjects with which this waiting for is connected are, as regards space, either the country or the theatre of war or the position, and as regards time, the war, the campaign or the battle. That these subjects are no immutable units, but only the centres of certain limited regions which run into one another and are blended together, we know. But in practical life, we must often be contented only to group things together, not rigidly to separate them. And these conceptions have, in the real world itself, sufficient distinctness to be made use of as centres round which we may group other ideas. A defence of the country, therefore, only waits for attack on the country, a defence of a theatre of war, an attack on the theatre of war, and the defence of a position, the attack of that position. Every positive, and consequently more or less offensive kind of action, which the defensive uses after the above period of waiting for, does not negate the idea of the continuance of the defensive. For the state of expectation, which is the chief sign of the same, and its chief advantage, has been realised. The conception of war, campaign and battle in relation to time are occupied respectively with the ideas of country, theatre of war and position, and on that account they have the same relations to the present subject. The defensive consists therefore of two heterogeneous parts, the state of expectancy and that of action. By having referred the first to a definite subject, and therefore given it precedence of action, we have made it possible to connect the two into one whole. But an act of the defensive especially a considerable one, such as a campaign or a whole war, does not, as regards time, consist of two great halves, the first the state of mere expectation, the second entirely of a state of action. It is a state of alternation between the two, in which the state of expectation can be traced through the whole act of the defensive like a continuous thread. We give to this state of expectation so much importance simply because it is demanded by the nature of the thing, in preceding theories of war, it has certainly never been brought forward as an independent conception, but in reality it has always served as a guide, although often unobserved. It is such a fundamental part of the whole act of war that one without the other appears almost impossible, and we shall therefore often have occasion to recur to it hereafter by calling attention to its effects in the dynamic action of the powers called into play. For the present, we shall simply employ ourselves in explaining how the principle of the state of expectation runs through the act of defence, and what are the successive stages in the defence itself which have their origins in this state. In order to establish our ideas on subjects of a more simple kind, we shall defer the defence of a country, a subject on which a very great diversity of political influences exercises a powerful effect, until we come to the book on the plan of war. And, as on the other hand, the defensive act in a position or in a battle is matter of tactics which only forms a starting point for strategic action as a whole, 
we shall take the defence of a theatre of war as being the subject in which we can best show the relations of the defensive we have said that the state of expectation and of action which last is always a counterstroke therefore a reaction are both essential parts of the defensive for without the first there would be no defensive without the second no war this view led us before to the idea of the defensive being nothing but the stronger form of war in order the more certainly to conquer the enemy this idea we must adhere to throughout partly because it alone saves us in the end from absurdity partly because the more vividly it is impressed on the mind so much the greater is the energy it imparts to the whole act of the defensive if therefore we should make a distinction between the reaction constituting the second element of the defensive and the other element which consists in reality in the repulse only of the enemy if we should look at expulsion from the country from the theatre of war in such a light as to see it alone the necessary thing by itself the ultimate object beyond the attainment of which our efforts should not be carried and on the other hand regard the possibility of a reaction carried still further and passing into the real strategic attack as a subject foreign to and of no consequence to the defence such a view would be in opposition to the nature of the idea above represented and therefore we cannot look upon this distinction as really existing and we must adhere to our assertion that the idea of revenge must always be at the bottom of every defensive for otherwise however much damage might be occasioned to the enemy by a successful issue of the first reaction there would always be a deficiency in the necessary balance of the dynamic relations of the attack and defence we say then the defensive is the more powerful form of making war in order to overcome the enemy more easily and we leave to circumstances to determine whether this victory over the object against which the defence was commenced is sufficient or not but as the defensive is inseparable from the idea of the state of expectation that object the defeat of the enemy only exists conditionally that is only if the offensive takes place and otherwise open bracket that is if the offensive stroke does not follow close bracket of course the defensive is contented with the maintenance of its possessions this maintenance is therefore its object in the state of expectation that is its immediate object and it is only as long as it contents itself with this more modest end that it preserves the advantages of the stronger form of war if we suppose an army with its theatre of war intended for defence the defence may be made as follows one by attacking the enemy the moment he enters the theatre of war open brackets molwitz hohenfriedberg close brackets two by taking up a position close on the frontier and waiting till the enemy appears with the intention of attacking it in order then to attack him open bracket saslau saw rosbach close bracket plainly this second mode of proceeding partakes more of endurance we wait for longer and although the time gained by it as compared with that gained in the first may be very little or none at all if the enemy's attack actually takes place still the battle which in the first case was certain is in the second much less certain perhaps the enemy may not be able to make up his mind to attack the advantage of the waiting for is then at once greater three by the army in such position not only awaiting the decision of the enemy to fight a battle that is his appearance in front of the position but also waiting to be actually assaulted open bracket in order to keep to the same general bunzelwitz close bracket in such cases 
we fight a regular defensive battle, which, however, as we have before said, may include offensive movements with one or more parts of the army. Here also, as before, the gain of time does not come into consideration, but the determination of the enemy is put to a new proof. Many a one has advanced to the attack, and at the last moment, or after one attempt, given it up, finding the position of the enemy too strong. For, by the army transferring its defence to the heart of the country, the object of retreating into the interior is to cause a diminution in the enemy's strength, and to wait until its effects are such that his forward march is of itself discontinued, or at least until the resistance which we can offer him at the end of his career is such as he can no longer overcome. This case is exhibited in the simplest and plainest manner, when the defensive can leave one or more of his fortresses behind him, which the offensive is obliged to besiege or blockade. It is clear in itself how much his forces must be weakened in this way, and what a chance there is of an opportunity for the defensive to attack at some point with superior forces. But even when there are no fortresses, a retreat into the interior of the country may procure by degrees for the defender that necessary equilibrium, or that superiority which was wanting to him on the frontier. For every forward movement in the strategic attack lessens its force, partly absolutely, partly through the separation of forces which becomes necessary, of which we shall say more under the head of the attack. We anticipate this truth here as we consider it as a fact sufficiently exemplified in all wars. Now, in this fourth case, the gain of time is to be looked upon as the principal point of all. If the assailant lays siege to our fortresses, we have time till their probable fall, open bracket, which may be some weeks or, in some cases, months, close bracket. But if the weakening that is, the expenditure of the force of the attack is caused by the advance and the garrisoning or occupying of certain points, therefore merely through the length of the assailant's march, then the time gained in most cases becomes greater and our action is not so much restricted in point of time. Besides the altered relations between offensive and defensive in regard to power, which is brought about at the end of this march, we must bring into account in favour of the defensive an increased amount of the advantage of the state of waiting for. Although the assailant by his advance may not in reality be weakened to such a degree that he is unfit to attack our main body where he halts, still he will probably want resolution to do so, for that is an act requiring more resolution in the position in which he is now placed than would have sufficed when operations had not extended beyond the frontier partly because the powers are weakened and no longer in fresh vigour, while the danger is increased, partly because with an irresolute commander, the possession of that portion of the country which has been obtained is often sufficient to do away with all idea of a battle, because he either really believes or assumes as a pretext that it is no longer necessary. By the offensive thus declining to attack, the defensive certainly does not acquire, as he would on the frontier, a sufficient result of a negative kind, but still there is a great gain of time. It is plain that in all the four methods indicated the defensive has the benefit of the ground or country, and likewise that he can, by that means, bring into cooperation his fortresses and the people. Moreover, these efficient principles increase at each fresh stage of the defence, for they are a chief means of bringing about the weakening of the enemy's force in the fourth stage. Now, as the advantages of the state of expectation increase in the same direction, Therefore, it follows of itself that these stages are to be regarded as a real intensifying of the defence, and that this form of war always gains its strength the more it differs from the offensive. We are not afraid on this account of any one accusing us of 
holding the opinion that the most passive defence would therefore be the best. The action of a resistance is not weakened at each new stage, it is only delayed, postponed. But the assertion that a stouter resistance can be offered in a strong, judiciously entrenched position, and also that when the enemy has exhausted his strength in fruitless efforts against such a position, a more effective counterstroke may be levelled at him, is surely not unreasonable. Without the advantage of position, Dawn would not have gained the victory at Cullen, and as Frederick the Great only bought off 18,000 men from the field of battle, if Dawn had pursued him with more energy, the victory might have been one of the most brilliant in military history. We therefore maintain that at each new stage of the defensive, the preponderance, or more correctly speaking, the counterpoise increases in favour of the defensive, and consequently there is also a gain in power for the counterstroke. Now, are these advantages of the increasing force of the defensive to be had for nothing? By no means, for the sacrifice with which they are purchased increases in the same proportion. If we wait for the enemy within our own theatre of war, however near the border of our territory, the decision takes place. Still, this theatre of war is entered by the enemy, which must entail a sacrifice on our part. Whereas, had we made the attack, this disadvantage would have fallen to the enemy. If we do not proceed at once to meet the enemy and attack him, our loss will be the greater, and the extent of the country which the enemy will overrun, as well as the time which he requires to reach our position, will continually increase. If we wish to give battle on the defensive, and we therefore leave its determination, and the choice of time for it, to the enemy, then perhaps he may remain for some time in occupation of the territory which he has taken, and the time which through his deferred decision we are allowed to gain, will in that matter be paid for by us. The sacrifices which must be made become still more burdensome if a retreat into the heart of the country takes place. But all these sacrifices on the part of the defensive at most only occasion him in general a loss of power, which merely diminishes his military force indirectly, therefore at a later period, and not directly, and often so indirectly that its effect is hardly felt at all. The defensive therefore strengthens himself for the present moment at the expense of the future, that is to say he borrows, as everyone must, who is too poor for the circumstances in which he is placed. Now, if we would examine the result of these different forms of resistance, we must look to the object of the aggression. This is, to obtain possession of our theatre of war, or at least of an important part of it, for, under the conception of the whole, at least the greater part must be understood. As the possession of a strip of territory a few miles in extent is, as a rule, of no real consequence in strategy. As long, therefore, as the aggressor is not in possession of this, that is, as long as, from fear of our force, he has neither yet advanced to the attack of the theatre of war, or has not sought to find us in our own position, or has declined the combat we offer, the object of the defence is fulfilled, and the effects of the measures taken for the defence have therefore been successful. At the same time, this result is only a negative one, which certainly cannot directly give the force for a real counterstroke, but it may give it indirectly, that is to say, it is on the way to do so. For the time which elapses, the aggression loses, and every loss of time is a disadvantage, and must weaken in some way the party who suffers the loss. Therefore, in the first three stages of the defensive, that is, if it takes place on the frontier, the non-decision is already a result in favour of the defensive, but it is not so within the fourth. If the enemy lays siege to our fortresses, we must relieve them in time. To do this, we must therefore bring about the decision by positive action. 
This is likewise the case if the enemy follows us into the interior of the country without besieging any of our places. Certainly, in this case, we have more time. We can wait until the enemy's weakness is extreme. But still, it is always an indispensable condition that we are at last to act. The enemy is now, perhaps, in possession of the whole territory, which was the object of his aggression, but it is only lent to him. The tension continues, and the decision is yet pending. As long as the defensive is gaining strength and the aggressor daily becoming weaker, the postponement of the decision is in the interests of the former, but as soon as the culminating point of this progressive advantage has arrived, as it must do, were it only by the ultimate influence of the general loss to which the offensive has exposed himself, it is time for the defender to proceed to action and bring on a solution, and the advantage of the waiting for may be considered completely exhausted. There can naturally be no point of time fixed generally at which this happens, for it is determined by a multitude of circumstances and relations, but it may be observed that the winter is usually a natural turning point. If we cannot prevent the enemy from wintering in the territory which he has seized, then, as a rule, it must be looked upon as given up. We have only, however, to call to mind Torres Vedras to see that this is no general rule. What is now the solution generally? We have always supposed it in our observations in the form of a battle, but in reality this is not necessary, for a number of combinations of battles with separate corps may be imagined which may bring about a change of affairs either because they have really ended with bloodshed or because their probable result makes the retreat of the enemy necessary. Upon the theatre of war itself there can be no other solution. That is a necessary consequence of our view of war, for, in fact, even if an enemy's army, merely from want of provisions, commences his retreat, still it takes place from the state of restraint in which our sword holds him. If our army was not in the way, he would soon be able to provision his forces. Therefore, even at the end of his aggressive course, when the enemy is suffering the heavy penalty of his attack, when detachments, hunger and sickness have weakened and worn him out, it is still always the dread of our sword which causes him to turn about and allow everything to go on again as usual. But nevertheless, there is a great difference between such a solution and one which takes place on the frontier. In the latter case, our arms only were opposed to his to keep him in check or carry destruction into his ranks. But at the end of the aggressive career, the enemy's forces by their own exertions are half destroyed, by which our arms acquire a totally different value, and therefore, although they are the final, they are not the only means which have produced the solution. This destruction of the enemy's forces in the advance prepares the solution and may do so to this extent that the mere possibility of a reaction on our part may cause the retreat, consequently a reversal of the situation of affairs. In this case, therefore, we can practically ascribe the solution to nothing else than the efforts made in the advance. Now, in point of fact, we shall find no case in which the sword of the defensive has not cooperated, but for the practical view it is important to distinguish which of the two principles is the predominating one. In this sense, we think we may say that there is a double solution in the defensive, consequently a double kind of reaction, according as the aggressor is ruined by the sword of the defensive or by his own efforts. That the first kind of solution predominates in the first three steps of the defence, the second in the fourth, is evident in itself, and the latter will, in most cases, 
only come to pass by the retreat being carried deep into the heart of the country, and nothing but the prospect of that result can be a sufficient motive for such a retreat, considering the great sacrifices which it must cost. We have, therefore, ascertained that there are two different principles of defence. There are cases in military history where they each appear as separate and distinct as it is possible for an elementary conception to appear in practical life. When Frederick the Great attacked the Austrians at Hohenfriedberg, just as they were descending from the Silesian Mountains, their forces could not have been weakened in any sensible manner by detachments or fatigue. When, on the other hand, Wellington, in his entrenched camp at Torres Vedras, waited till hunger and the severity of the weather had reduced Messina's army to such extremities that they commenced a retreat of themselves, the sword of the defensive party had no share in the weakening of the enemy's army. In other causes, in which they are combined with each other in a variety of ways, still one of them distinctly predominates. This was the case in the year 1812. In that celebrated campaign, such a number of bloody encounters took place as might, under other circumstances, have sufficed for a most complete decision by the sword. Nevertheless, there is hardly any campaign in which we cannot so plainly see how the aggressor may be ruined by his own efforts. Of the 300,000 men composing the French centre, only about 90,000 reached Moscow. Not more than 13,000 were detached. Consequently, there had been a loss of 197,000 men, and certainly not a third of that loss can be put to account of battles. All campaigns which are remarkable for temporising, as it is called, like those of the famous Fabius Cunctator, have been calculated chiefly on the destruction of the enemy by his own efforts. This principle has been the leading one in many campaigns, without that point being almost ever mentioned, and it is only when we disregard the specious reasoning of historians, and look at things clearly with our own eyes, that we are led to this real cause of many a solution. By this we believe we have unravelled sufficiently those ideas which lie at the root of the defensive, and that in the two great kinds of defence we have shown plainly and made intelligible how the principle of the waiting for runs through the whole system and connects itself with positive action in such a manner that sooner or later action does take place, and that then the advantage of the attitude of waiting for appears to be exhausted. We think, now, that in this way we have gone over and brought into view everything comprised in the province of the defensive. At the same time, there are subjects of sufficient importance in themselves to form separate chapters, that is, points for consideration in themselves, and these we must also study, for example, the nature and influence of fortified places, entrenched camps, defences of mountains and rivers, operations against the flank, etc., etc. We shall treat of them in subsequent chapters, but none of these things lie outside of the preceding sequence of ideas. They are only to be regarded as a closer application of it to locality and circumstance. That order of ideas has been deduced from the conception of the defensive and from its relation to the offensive. We have connected these simple ideas with reality and therefore shown the way by which we may return again from the reality to those simple ideas and obtain firm ground and not be forced into reasoning to take refuge on points of support which themselves vanish in the air. But resistance by the sword may wear such an altered appearance, assume such a different character through the multiplicity of ways of combining battles, especially in cases where these are not actually realised but become effectual merely through their possibility, that we might incline to the opinion that there must be some other efficient active principle 
still to be discovered between the sanguinary defeat in a simple battle and the effects of strategic combinations which do not bring the thing nearly so far as actual combat there seems such a difference that it is necessary to suppose some fresh force something in the same way as astronomers have decided on the existence of other planets from the great space between mars and jupiter if the assailant finds the defender in a strong position which he thinks he cannot take or behind a large river which he thinks he cannot cross or even if he fears that by advancing further he will not be able to subsist his army in all these cases is it nothing but the sword of the defensive which produces the effect for it is the fear of being conquered by this sword either in a great battle or at some specially important points which compels the aggressor to stop only he will either not admit that at all or does not admit it in a straightforward way now even if it is granted that where there has been a decision without bloodshed the combat merely offered but not accepted has been the ultimate cause of the decision it will still be thought that in such cases the really effectual principle is the strategic combination of these combats and not their tactical decision and that this superiority of the strategic combination could only have been thought of because there are other defensive means which may be considered besides an actual appeal to the sword we admit this and it brings us just to the point we wish to arrive at which is as follows if the tactical result of a battle must be the foundation of all strategic combinations then it is always possible and to be feared that the assailant may lay hold of this principle and above all things direct his efforts to be superior in the hour of decision in order to baffle the strategic combination and that therefore this strategic combination can never be regarded as something all-sufficient in itself that it only has a value when either on one ground or another we can look forward to the tactical solution without any misgivings in order to make ourselves intelligible in a few words we shall merely call to our readers collection how such a general as bonaparte marched without hesitation through the whole web of his opponent's strategic plans to seek for the battle itself because he had no doubts as to the issue where therefore strategy had not directed its whole effort to ensure a preponderance of him in this battle where it engaged in finer open bracket, feebler close bracket, plans there it was rent asunder like a cobweb but a general like dawn might be checked by such measures it would therefore be folly to offer bonaparte and his army what the prussian army of the seven years war dared to offer dawn and his contemporaries why because bonaparte knew right well that all depended on the tactical issue and made certain of gaining it whereas with dawn it was very difficult in both respects on this account we hold it therefore to be serviceable to show that every strategic combination rests only upon the tactical results and that these are everywhere in the bloody as well as in the bloodless solution the real fundamental grounds of the ultimate decision it is only if we have no reason to fear that decision whether on account of the character or the situation of the enemy or on account of the moral and physical equality of the two armies or on account of our own superiority it is only then thought that we can expect something from strategic combinations themselves without seeing battle now if a great many campaigns are to be found within the compass of military history in which the assailant gives up the offensive without any blood being spilt in fight in which therefore strategic combinations show themselves effectual to that degree this may lead to the idea that these combinations have at least great inherent force in themselves and might in general decide the affair alone where too great a preponderance in the tactical results is not supposed on the side of the aggressor to this we answer that 
If the question is about things which have their origin in the theatre of war, and consequently belong to the war itself, this idea is also equally false, and we add that the cause of the failure of most attacks is to be found in the higher, the political relations of war. The general relations out of which a war springs, and which naturally constitute its foundation, determine also its character. On this subject we shall have more to say hereafter, in treating of the plan of war. But these general relations have converted most wars into half-and-half half things, into which real hostility has to force its way through such a conflict of interests that it is only a very weak element at the last. This effect must naturally show itself chiefly and with most force on the side of the offensive, the side of positive action. One cannot, therefore, wonder if such a short-winded, consumptive attack is brought to a standstill by the touch of a finger. Against a weak resolution so fettered by a thousand considerations that it has hardly any existence, a mere show of resistance is often enough. It is not the number of unassailable positions in all directions, nor the formidable look of the dark mountain masses encamped round the theatre of war, or the broad river which passes through it, nor the ease with which certain combinations of battles can effectively paralyse the muscle which should strike the blow against us. None of these things are the true causes of the numerous successes which the defensive gains on bloodless fields. The cause lies in the weakness of the will with which the assailant puts forward his hesitating feet. These counteracting influences may and ought to be taken into consideration, but they should only be looked upon in their true light, and their efforts should not be ascribed to other things, namely the things of which alone we are now treating. We must not omit to point out in an emphatic manner how easily military history, in this respect, may become a perpetual liar and deceiver if criticism is not careful about taking a correct point of view. Now let us consider, in what we may call their ordinary form, the many offensive campaigns which have miscarried without a bloody solution. The assailant advances into the enemy's country, drives back his opponent a little way, but finds it too serious a matter to bring on a decisive battle. He therefore remains standing opposite to him, acts as if he had made a conquest, and had nothing else to do but to protect it. If it was the enemy's business to seek the battle, as if he offered it to him daily, etc., etc., these are the representations by which the commander deludes his army his government, the world, even himself. But the truth is that he finds the enemy in a position too strong for him. We do not now speak of a case where an aggressor does not proceed with his attack because he can make no use of a victory, because at the end of his first bound he has not enough impulsive force left to begin another. Such a case supposes an attack which has been successful, a real conquest. But we have here in view the case where an assailant sticks fast halfway to his intended conquest. He is now waiting to take advantage of favourable circumstances. Of which favourable circumstances there is in general no prospect. For the aggression now intended shows at once that there is no better prospect from the future than from the present. It is therefore a further illusion. If now, as is commonly the case, the undertaking is in connection with other simultaneous operations, then what they do not want to do themselves is transferred to other shoulders, and their own inactivity is ascribed to want of support and proper cooperation. Insurmountable obstacles are talked of, and motives in justification are discovered in the most confused and subtle considerations. Thus the forces of the assailant are wasted away in inactivity, or rather in a partial activity, destitute of any utility. 
the defensive gains time the greatest gain to him bad weather arrives and the aggression ends by the return of the aggressor to winter quarters in his own theatre of war a tissue of false representations thus passes into history in place of the simple real ground of absence of any result namely fear of the enemy's sword when criticism takes up such a campaign it wearies itself in the discussion of a number of motives and counter motives which give no satisfactory result because they all dwindle into vapour and we have not descended to the real foundation of the truth the opposition through which the elementary energy of war and therefore of the offensive in particular becomes weakened lies for the most part in the relations and views of states and these are always concealed from the world from the mass of the people belonging to the state as well as from the army and very often from the general-in-chief no one will account for his faint-heartedness by the admission that he feared he could not attain the desired object with the force at his disposal or that new enemies would be roused or that he did not wish to make his allies too powerful etc such things are hushed up but as occurrences have to be placed before the world in a presentable form therefore the commander is obliged either on his own account or on that of his government to pass off a tissue of fictitious motives this ever-recurring deception in military dialects has ossified into systems in theory which of course are equally devoid of truth theory can never be deduced from the essence of things except by following the simple thread of cause and effect as we have tried to do if we look at military history with this feeling of suspicion then a great parade of mere words about offensive and defensive collapses and the simple idea of it which we have given comes forward of itself we believe it therefore to be applicable to the whole domain of the defensive and that we must adhere closely to it in order to obtain that clear view of the mass of events by which alone we can form correct judgments we have still to inquire into the question of the employment of these different forms of defence as they are merely gradations of the same which must be purchased by a higher sacrifice corresponding to the increased intensity of the form there would seem to be sufficient in that view to indicate always to the general which he should choose provided there are no other circumstances which interfere he would in fact choose that form which appeared sufficient to give his force the requisite degree of defensive power and no more that there might be no unnecessary waste of his force but we must not overlook the circumstance that the room given for choice amongst these different forms is generally very circumscribed because other circumstances which must be attended to necessarily urge a preference for one or the other of them for a retreat into the interior of the country a considerable superficial space is required or such a condition of things as existed in portugal eighteen ten where one ally england gave support in the rear and another spain with its wide territory considerably diminished the impulsive force of the enemy the position of the fortresses more on the frontier or more in the interior may likewise decide for or against such a plan but still more the nature of the country and ground the character habits and feelings of the inhabitants the choice between an offensive or defensive battle may be decided by the plans of the enemy by the peculiar qualities of both armies and their generals lastly the possession of an excellent position or line of defence or the want of them may determine for one or the other in short at the bare mention of these things we can perceive that the choice of the form of defensive must in many cases be determined more by them 
than by the mere relative strength of the armies as we shall hereafter enter more into detail on the more important subjects which have just been touched upon the influence which they must have upon the choice will develop itself more distinctly and in the end the whole will be methodized in the book on plans of wars and campaigns but this influence will not in general be decisive unless the inequality in the strength of the opposing armies is trifling in the opposite case open bracket as in the generality of cases close bracket the relation of the numerical strength will be decisive there is ample proof in military history that it has done so heretofore and that without the chain of reasoning by which it has been brought out here therefore in a manner intuitively by mere tact of judgment like most things that happen in war it was the same general who at the head of the same army and on the same theatre of war fought the battle of hohenfriedberg and at another time took up the camp of bunzelwitz therefore even frederick the great a general above all inclined to the offensive as regards the battle saw himself compelled at last by a great disproportion of force to resort to a real defensive position and bonaparte who was once in the habit of falling on his enemy like a wild boar have we not seen him when the proportion of force turned against him in august and september eighteen thirteen turn himself hither and thither as if he had been pent up in a cage instead of rushing forward recklessly upon some one of his adversaries and in october of the same year when the disproportion reached its climax have we not seen him at leipzig seeking shelter in the angle formed by the path the elster and the police as it were waiting for his enemy in the corner of a room with his back against the wall we cannot omit to observe that from this chapter more than from any other in our book it is plainly shown that our object is not to lay down new principles and methods of conducting war but merely to investigate what has long existed in its innermost relations and to reduce it to its simplest elements end of chapter eight chapter nine defensive battle we have said in the preceding chapter that the defender in his defensive would make use of a battle technically speaking of a purely offensive character if at the moment the enemy invades his theatre of war he marches against him and attacks him but that he might also wait for the appearance of the enemy in his front and then pass over to the attack in which case also the battle tactically would be again an offensive battle although in a modified form and lastly that he might wait till the enemy attacked his position and then oppose him both by holding a particular spot and by offensive action with portions of his force in all this we may imagine several different gradations and shades deviating always more from the principle of a positive counterstroke and passing into that of a defence of a spot of ground we cannot here enter on the subject of how far this should be carried and which is the most advantageous proportion of the two elements of offensive and defensive as regards the winning a decisive victory but we maintain that when such a result is desired the offensive part of the battle should never be completely omitted and we are convinced that all the effects of a decisive victory may and must be produced by this offensive part just as well as in a purely tactical offensive battle in the same manner as the field of battle is only a point in strategy the duration of a battle is only strategically an instant of time and the end and the result not the course of a battle constitutes a strategic quantity now if it is true that a complete victory may result from the offensive elements which lie in every defensive battle 
then there should be no fundamental difference between an offensive and a defensive battle as far as regards strategic combinations we are indeed convinced that this is so but the thing wears a different appearance in order to fix the subject more distinctly in the eye to make our view clear and thereby remove the appearance now referred to we shall sketch hastily the picture of defensive battle such as we imagine it the defensive waits the attack in a position for this he has selected proper ground and turned it to the best account that is he has made himself well acquainted with the locality thrown up strong entrenchments at some of the most important points opened and levelled communications constructed batteries fortified villages and looked out places where he can draw up his masses under cover etc 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 whilst the forces on both sides are consuming each other at different points where they come into contact the advantage of a front more or less strong the approach to which is made difficult by one or more parallel trenches or other obstacles or also by the influence of some strong commanding points enables him with a small part of his force to destroy great numbers of the enemy at every stage of the defence up to the heart of the position the points of support which he has given his wings secure him from any sudden attack from several quarters the covered ground which he has chosen for his masses makes the enemy cautious indeed timid and affords the defensive the means of diminishing by partial and successful attacks the general backward movement goes on as the combat becomes gradually concentrated within narrower limits the defender therefore casts a contented look at the battle as it burns in a moderate blaze before him but he does not reckon that his resistance in front can last for ever he does not think his flanks impregnable he does not expect that the whole course of the battle will be changed by the successful charge of a few battalions or squadrons his position is deep for each part in the scale of gradation of the order of battle from the division down to the battalion has its reserve for unforeseen events and for a renewal of the fight and at the same time an important mass one-fifth to a quarter of the whole is kept quite in the rear out of the battle so far back as to be quite out of fire and if possible so far as to be beyond the circuitous line by which the enemy might attempt to turn either flank with this corps he intends to cover his flanks from wider and greater turning movements secure himself against unforeseen events and in the latter stage of the battle when the assailant's plan is fully developed when the most of his troops have been brought into action he will throw this mass on a part of the enemy's army and open at that part of the field a smaller offensive battle on his own part using all the elements of attack such as charges surprise turning movements and by means of this pressure against the centre of gravity of the battle now only resting on a point make the whole recoil this is the normal idea which we have formed of a defensive battle based on the tactics of the present day in this battle the general turning movement made by the assailant in order to assist his attack and at the same time with a view to make the results of victory more complete is replied to by a partial turning movement on the part of the defensive that is by the turning of that part of the assailant's force used by him in the attempt to turn this partial movement may be supposed sufficient to destroy the effect of the enemy's attempt but it cannot lead to a like general enveloping of the assailant's army and there will always be a distinction in the features of a victory on this account that the side fighting an offensive battle encircles the enemy's army and acts towards the centre of the same while the side fighting on the defensive acts more or less from the centre to the circumference in the direction of the radii 
on the field of battle itself and in the first stages of the pursuit the enveloping form must always be considered the most effectual we do not mean on account of its form generally we only mean in the event of its being carried out to such an extreme as to limit very much the enemy's means of retreat during the battle but it is just against this extreme point that the enemy's positive counter-effort is directed and in many cases where this effort is not sufficient to obtain a victory it will at least suffice to protect him from such an extreme as we allude to but we must always admit that this danger namely of having the line of retreat seriously contracted is particularly great in defensive battles and if it cannot be guarded against the results in the battle itself and in the first stage of the retreat are thereby very much enhanced in favour of the enemy but as a rule this danger does not extend beyond the first stage of the retreat that is until nightfall on the following day enveloping is at an end and both parties are again on an equality in this respect certainly the defender may have lost his principal line of retreat and therefore be placed in a disadvantageous strategic situation for the future but in most cases the turning movement itself will be at an end because it was only planned to suit the field of battle and therefore cannot apply much further but what will take place on the other hand if the defender is victorious a division of the defeated force this may facilitate the retreat at the first moment but next day a concentration of all parts is the one thing most needful now if the victory is a most decisive one if the defender pursues with great energy this concentration will often become impossible and from this separation of the beaten force the worst consequences may follow which may go on step by step to complete rout if bonaparte had conquered at leipzig the allied army would have been completely cut in two which would have considerably lowered their relative strategic position at dresden although bonaparte certainly did not fight a regular defensive battle the attack had the geometrical form of which we had been speaking that is from the centre to the circumference the embarrassment of the allies in consequence of their separation is well known an embarrassment from which they were only relieved by the victory on the katzbach the tidings of which caused bonaparte to return to dresden with the guard this battle on the katzbach itself is a similar example in it the defender at the last moment passes over to the offensive and consequently operates on diverging lines the french corps were thus wedged asunder and several days after as the fruits of victory puthod's division fell into the hands of the allies the conclusion we draw from this is that if the assailant by the concentric form which is homogeneous to him has the means of giving expansion to his victory on the other hand the defender also by the divergent form which is homogeneous to the defence acquires a means of giving greater results to his victory than would be the case by a merely parallel position and perpendicular attack and we think that one means is at least as good as the other if in military history we rarely find such great victories resulting from the defensive battle as from the offensive that proves nothing against our assertion that the one is as well suited to produce victory as the other the real cause is in the very different relations of the defender the army acting on the defensive is generally the weaker of the two not only in the amount of his forces but also in every other respect he either is or thinks he is not in a condition to follow up his victory with great results and contents himself with merely fending off the danger and saving the honour of his arms that the defender by inferiority of force and other circumstances may be tied down to that degree we do not dispute but there is no doubt that this which is only the consequence of a contingent necessity has often been assumed to be the consequence of that part which every defender has to play and thus in an absurd manner it has become a prevalent view of the defensive that its battles 
should really be confined to warding off the attacks of the enemy, and not directed to the destruction of the enemy. We hold this to be a prejudicial error, a regular substitution of the form for the thing itself, and we maintain, unreservedly, that in the form of war, which we call defence, the victory may not only be more probable, but may also attain the same magnitude and efficacy as in the attack, and that this may be the case not only in the total result of all the combatants which constitute a campaign, but also in any particular battle, if the necessary degree of force and energy is not wanting. End of chapter 9 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia